You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. It's my privilege and honor to get to talk about um, the most important things in the world with you this morning, namely uh, God's Word and the Gospel. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 21 to 39. I'd love for you to turn there with me if you would, or pop it open on your phone, or however you uh, are going to uh, examine God's Word this morning. And as I understand, you're in the middle of uh, making your way through the book of Matthew as a congregation, and so it's just really exciting to get to be a part of that Um, walk through with you this morning. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to just pray with me one more time. Let's ask for the Lord's favor as we look at this. Oh God, open now our our dull eyes, our slow to hear ears, Lord, in whatever ways we need to be roused from apathy or drowsiness, spiritual or otherwise. I pray that you would now do so and guide us into all the truth and let us see clearly from this text just uh, the, the limitless love and grace of Jesus and mercy and the invitation and call to welcome that you have for each one of us. Lord, may we um, be blessed by you and may you give good things to your people now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here in the United States, we love, we love our pets. We love them, uh, particularly dogs. I saw a survey uh, taken in 2021 of 400 adult Americans 
that suggested that 36% of Americans feel their dog is their closest companion. 82% said it was, quote, love at first sight when they first met their dog. And one in four indicated that they would, if they needed to, sacrifice their own life to save their dog. I just read an article this week on the internet by a guy uh, who was a guest lecturer at a university on the East Coast for a semester. He was from uh, Ireland or Scotland or someplace like that. And so he and his family were staying in the US uh, for a semester while he was teaching. And he described two upscale stores close to the uh, housing that his family was living in. They both had bakeries exclusively for dogs. There are fresh meat sections in our grocery stores for our animals. Some of our animals perhaps eat better than many human beings do in the world today. But for all the uh, affection and care that we Americans like to pour out on our pets, our dogs in particular, uh, in Jesus' time in the ancient Near East, dogs probably weren't so universally beloved and kept as pleasant house pets. They were frequently uh, wild pack-running, scavenging, uh, scavenging pests. And for Jews, of course, they would have been ceremonially unclean, unable to eat them if they wanted to, and throughout the Bible, to call somebody a dog was a contemptuous thing to say of someone. And so for us this morning now, to hear Jesus lump a desperate woman in with dogs in our text is pretty shocking. But we have to read the whole story. Because the whole story clarifies something about such dogs. Namely, that God cares about them. So far from shackling Jesus with racist stereotypes of Gentile women. So far from doing that. Instead, our text this morning reveals him to be demonstrating something absolutely sublime about the kingdom of God. Namely, that anybody in desperate need who comes to Jesus in faith will receive mercy even those who are normally thought to be outside the scope of that mercy. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through this text fairly briefly, I think, and then draw out a few implications for us so we're not doing anything fancy this morning. I just want us to talk through what's going on here, and then we'll draw a few conclusions and observations. So in verses 21 through 28, that's kind of, you maybe notice if you're reading the ESV, uh, the translators have helpfully kind of divided this into three sort of little sections. Oh, that's, that's all right, I don't think that's a, a bad thing here. Uh, and that's kind of the way that we'll tackle these uh, in order. And so in verses 21 through 28, we see kind of the first little section that, um, <clears throat> this first little episode in which we might summarize this as Jesus having mercy on a, uh, with quotes, a dog. In uh, the previous section, in the previous part of verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 10 and following, he's had, Jesus has had a confrontation with the religious elite, with the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's been about ritual purity, which those sorts of folks thought was the key way that they were set apart from the unwashed masses, masses of the Gentile world. And, then, and so immediately after that confrontation, Jesus goes away, it says in verse 21, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which I had to check a map 
map again for this, but uh, those cities were in a region northwest of the Sea of Galilee, so sort of on the northern end of, uh, of the, the territory of Israel, and then a little bit to the west is where Jesus uh, withdraws to, and Tyre and Sidon, if you're an Old Testament Bible reader, uh, you maybe remember those names. These are common names for uh, the historic enemies of Israel, and they come under frequent and scathing judgment and condemnation from the Hebrew prophets. And so these are, uh, this is historically a region that has not been known for its friendliness uh, towards the Jews uh, and vice versa. And Jesus is there and it says in verse 22 that a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying to him. And Canaanite, uh, uh, that label probably wasn't an in-use in sort of term, in-use sort of label that, would have been, that, you know, that people would have used in Jesus' day, but Matthew's probably using that as a catch-all term to describe a Gentile woman from a region that, again, historically was known to be Israelite enemy. In fact, Mark in his uh, parallel passage of this, I think it's Mark 7, he calls her a Syrophoenician woman, describing, again, sort of the region that she was from. And she cries out, it says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, which is a really interesting thing to put in the mouth of this, uh, this gal who's not from the region that Jesus is from, who's a Gentile. She calls him Lord, which may just only be a, a polite means of address. Uh, frequently, folks called each other Lord to, as, as a means of honoring the person they were talking to. But then to say Lord, Son of David, to couple that with this distinctly Jewish sort of greeting, the Son of David, uh, indicates that she had some understanding that well, who she was addressing wasn't just an ordinary uh, sort of man that she needed to address with, you know, a sort of a noble term of respect. But rather, she seemed to be understanding him to be the Jewish Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, right? The, simply the one who's been anointed the king of Israel. And as time went on in Israelite history, they understood that to be uh, an eschatological figure, one who would come in their future to bring the kingdom in all its fullness and to restore the glory to Israel and, uh, and to usher in salvation for his people. And so this gal understands Jesus, or at least addresses him to be uh, the Lord, the son of David. She's desperate because her daughter, it says, is severely oppressed by a demon. And so in her desperation, she has come to the one that she thinks and believes is able to do something for her and able to grant a deliverance to her suffering daughter. And then in verse 23, this is where the confusion starts coming in. It says, verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. That's so weird, <laughs> right? Like to just... Act as though she weren't there. That seems so rude. I mean, so much for Jesus' radical, liberating treatment of women, right? And the oddness just continues. Verse 24, uh, actually, earlier in verse 23, the disciples come and they beg him, it says. They begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. They're annoyed, apparently. They don't want this, this woman tagging along crying out, you know, kind of pleading for the attention of, of their master. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In explanation to his silence, it says, my mission is first and foremost to the Jews. It seems so dismissive, so xenophobic. In verse 25, 
This woman doesn't give up. She persists. It says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus shockingly goes on to say, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's insinuating that the Jews are the proper children of God, deserving of his favor and blessing, whereas non-Jews aren't even considered to be on a similar playing field, but rather subhuman. And still, verse 26, she persists. And then verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is an absolutely stunning statement. She understood that God's merciful, saving purposes weren't limited to the Jews only, but in fact intended for everyone. To the Jew first, yes, but not to the Jew only. And with this one phrase, even the dogs eat what falls, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. With this one phrase, she indicates that she had a better grasp of the God of Israel's end game promise than the Jews themselves did. And Jesus acquiesces in verse 28. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. He commends her faith very highly. In fact, we don't have record of him commending anybody else in the gospel's faith this highly. Not even the disciples. Remember the disciples he called little faithers. Uh, in the Greek, it's just one word. You of little faith. You little faithers. He, uh, uh, one other time, in Matthew 8, I think, he commends the Gentile centurion for his faith. I haven't found such faith in all Israel. And now here to this woman, he says, great is your faith and goes on to heal instantaneously to cast this demon out of this poor woman's daughter. So let's reconsider this whole episode now and ask, was this really an ethno-theological verbal sparring match that Jesus lost? <laughs> right? Is that really what's going on? Was he really being rude and dismissive? It just doesn't seem consistent with the picture of Jesus we get from the rest of the Gospels. And with this last statement, commending the woman for her great faith, healing her daughter instantly, isn't he rather revealing that his intent all along was to grant her request and extend this mercy to her? And if that's the case, then what was he doing to initially not answer her a word, to go on and sort of lump her in with the Gentile dogs, so to speak? It seems like he must have been saying those things with his tongue firmly in his cheek and a glint in his eye. In other words, he was playing hard to get for a didactic purpose in order to bring out the woman's faith and her grasp of God's purposes for her all the more forcefully. He didn't actually think of her as a subhuman animal. He was replying with the conventional Jewish wisdom of his day in order to contrast that erroneous mindset with the universal reach and the open mercy of his kingdom. It's sort of like if you were to say to your children, uh, hey guys, let's go, shall we go get ice cream as a family? And they say, oh yes, oh yes, may we please, Daddy? And you say, ah, well, you know, ice cream prices, like everything else, they've just gone way up lately. Uh, uh, and they say, oh, but Daddy, may we just this once? And you say, ah, well, I don't think you guys even like ice cream all that much, do you? And, and they say, oh, but we do, but we do, Daddy, it's so delicious. And you say, ah, 
I bet they don't even have ice cream at the ice cream shop. I bet they've run out, supply chain issues, all that. And they say, oh, no way, Daddy. Of course they have it. Can we go? Can we go? And you say, ah, I don't know if ice cream is very good for you. And they say, oh, but Daddy, we'll eat it in moderation. We promise. And, <laughs> and of course you say, yes, let's go. Come on, you sillies. Let's go. What are you waiting for? What's the point of that little game, right? It's role-playing, to draw out something fundamental. Namely, it is such a joy, such a treat to get ice cream. And it's both your delight and theirs to do so. And so Jesus' intent all along with his role-play was to bless and welcome and heal the woman's daughter, even though she was outside what everyone else thought was the normal scope of God's mercy. We see this intent, I think, confirmed if we remember, I alluded to this earlier, Matthew 8, 10 and 11, a Gentile centurion had shown his faith in Jesus as one who had authority to heal. Remember he said, just say the word and, and, and it'll be done for me. Like I, I have people under my authority and I tell them go and do this and they do it. And so you, Jesus, if you tell this, you know, make this happen, you can make this happen. And Jesus, you remember, uh, said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he went on to explain, says in Matthew 8, 11, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He means Gentile outsiders whose faith was in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Whereas... The Jewish rejectors of Jesus would be thrown into the outer darkness. And so from early on, Jesus made it plain that God's purpose was to show mercy to all sorts of people. Indeed, in the next episodes, we're going to see in our text that the children's bread would then go on to be shared with thousands and thousands of so-called dogs. That's the next chunk, right? In verses 29 to 31, we see Jesus healing on the mountain. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And I love this phrase, then he went up on the mountain and sat down there. It's the same phrase, if you remember from Matthew chapter five, when Jesus goes to give the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew five, <clears throat> it says, Jesus' disciples came to him and he went up on the mountain and sat down. And you remember what he did then? He delivered the law of the kingdom of God like a new Moses. Just like Moses had gone up Mount Sinai to receive the law from the Father and <clears throat> to give them the law of the Old Covenant to the Old Covenant people, Jesus so as a new Moses went up on the mountain and sat down and as one who had authority himself, as one who uh, was the very lawgiver himself, he then proclaimed uh, the, um, the ethics of the kingdom of God. And here it's not just his Jewish disciples that have flocked to him. But hordes of people, it says, from the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark, in his parallel passage, tells that this was in the area of the Decapolis, which is a predominantly Gentile region. And so the theme is continued, right, from the previous episode about the, the Gentile woman, the Canaanite woman. The theme is continued. Jesus' earthly mission, yes, was first and primarily to deliver, deliver to the Jews, but just like the Old Testament promised, the Messiah's kingdom would be extended to include the Gentiles, and even all the earth. So just like how with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounded the kingdom of God to his people as the authoritative lawgiver, so now Jesus demonstrates the mercy and the power of the kingdom of God to a foreign people. Because it says, great crowds flocked to him, bringing all their hurting, all their societally challenged friends with them, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. Thank you. 
Jesus heals them all. He just heals them all. And it says, I love, it says in verse 31, when they saw this, it says they glorified the God of Israel. Isn't that a strange phrase to be found in smack dab in the middle of Matthew? They glorified the God of Israel. I mean, if Matthew's kind of writing, writing from a Semitic perspective to begin with, why include the, the God of Israel? But surely the reason is to show that these weren't Jews but outsiders, historically excluded from dealings with God's people and from the dealings of God with his people. And the theme just keeps going in the third episode, verses 32 through 39, where Jesus feeds a Gentile crowd. There's nothing of Jesus' tongue-in-cheek reply to the Canaanite woman here now, right? He's just out. He's just forward about his purpose with this massive crowd of Gentiles. He's not playing hard to get anymore. It's just, I have compassion, it says, verse 32. I have compassion on the crowd, or I moved in my guts for this crowd, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry. Hey, we're out here, guys. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. They've been with me three days. It's been this wild kingdom party of healings and teaching. And, uh, and now it's time for this to break up and for them to go away. And I'm not going to send them away without meeting their physical need, without having mercy on them and sending them away full. And the disciples kind of hold back, which is a little weird also because, again, as you've been going through Matthew, we saw just the previous chapter, chapter 14, Jesus had, had miraculously multiplied food to feed 5,000 men, plus women and children in that episode. And so it's a little weird to hear about the hesitancy and the withholding of the disciples. I mean, you would think they would see this and they'd be like, oh wow, he's gonna do it again. He's gonna do it again, right? That's what you'd expect, but there's none of that. Instead, it's where are we gonna get enough bread? This is a desolate place. This is a great crowd. Where are we going to have bread? Then Jesus has to kind of pry it out of them. Verse 34, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven, a few small fish. What's the explanation? What, what's their reticence about? And maybe this, that they're still reflecting the mindset that the Jewish Messiah miraculously feeding a huge crowd of Gentiles was outside his scope. That it wasn't proper somehow. That it wasn't his place somehow that it wasn't their concern that these so-called dogs should have thought of bringing supplies before they thronged us out here in the middle of nowhere. These aren't our people. We don't have a responsibility to them. And it maybe seems like they hadn't grasped fully the significance of how Jesus commended the Canaanite woman and her faith and made it plain that the scope of God's mission included not just Jews, but people from every tribe and language and nation. The disciples' hesitancy notwithstanding, Jesus does it again. Right? We see that he multiplies these seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Again, he gives thanks to the Father. He breaks them. He gives them to the disciples. Verse 36, the disciples then pass it out to the crowds. Everyone, verse 37, eats and are satisfied. And then they go through and take up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over in a very similar miracle to what we saw in chapter 14. Jesus does it again. It says that he fed 4,000 men plus women and children, a common accounting of crowd size, as I understand in those days. And I don't usually write in my Bible, um, but 
since the headings here uh, in my ESV translation are just translators' conventions, I always take it upon myself to write in, the, after it says, uh, Jesus feeds the 4,000, I always write men plus women and children <laughs> after that because it drives me nuts that our convention is always just to say the 4,000 when the text plainly says, well, it was more than that. It was 4,000 men plus women and children. What are we looking at? At least probably 12,000 people here. And he does it again, and in keeping with the emphasis of his mission as to Israel first, the previous feeding was more, 5,000 men plus women and children with 12 baskets afterward, whereas here now it's 4,000, right, with seven baskets. But the implication is unmissable, that Jesus has heartfelt compassion and mercy for people everyone thought were outside the scope of God's favor. You get thousands of people together out in a burning wilderness, desolate place to see wild stuff happen, to hear provocative teaching. It sounds kind of like Burning Man or uh, maybe the, the Cornerstone Festival. Uh, when I, in the summer of 97, my dad took me uh, to the Cornerstone Festival in Illinois to go see a bunch of bands play uh, you know, out in the middle of some farm. Uh, it's just blisteringly hot and sweaty, and, and, and this sort of thing is just pure logistical chaos, right? When, I, when we went to Cornerstone, it was just uh, people are parked and camped everywhere. There's overflowing porta-potties, mud pits, oppressive heat, uh, food vendors, but apparently there weren't any food vendors at this wilderness experience, and it says they were with them for three days. Can you imagine how hungry these people must have been to sit at Jesus' feet, and to bring him their hurting and their disabled and their marginalized friends and their loved ones. How desperate to hear him, to present themselves to him hoping for a merciful miracle. Three days. And in love, Jesus enters into and he embraces that sweaty, desperate, unclean human chaos. And so there are a few implications or application that we might draw from this that I just want to bring to our attention, I think. And I have kind of divided this way. Now, the first implication, applications, are for those of you who might consider yourself outsiders. For outsiders, I think the application here is to know that Jesus will receive and heal you if you come to him in faith and he won't send you away empty. If you tend to think of yourself on the outside, so to speak, alienated, unclean, marginalized, a weirdo or a freak or an oddball or an eccentric. Or maybe you're not normally fond of church. And what you think is it's sanitized, whitewashed presentation. I go to church, there's all these smiling faces, successful, well-dressed people and their adorable, well-mannered children. It's not me, right? Or maybe you're suspicious. Or maybe you've been met with fear or distaste or rudeness or disrespect. Or perhaps you're really just aware of your sin and your guilt and it drives this horrible, infinitely weighted wedge between you and God. This morning, know that Jesus can and he will receive you when you put your faith in him. Know that Jesus stands with open arms ready to save you. Know that Jesus is there with welcome and mercy and forgiveness, full and free. Jesus offers the most genuine, sincere, open-hearted welcome with a capital W. All other welcomes 
in this world are but little types and shadows of the ultimate welcome of Jesus. Every greeting that we humans extend to each other from a squealing, finger-wiggling hug to the subtle nod of the head is derived from and is a tiny pointer to the welcome that Jesus gives to every sinner who repents and believes. Jesus' welcome can be such a welcome because it was procured at ultimate cost, his own blood. Jesus died on a cross in the place of lost sinners who were ruined, hopeless, and desperate, Jew or Gentile, who from the vantage point of purity were unclean, so to speak, dogs. Jesus gave his life to forgive and welcome any man or woman or child who humbly kneels at his feet and puts their faith in him. And so I just want to invite you, if you don't know that, welcome. If you think of yourself as an outsider, you think I'm probably outside the scope of the grace of God. I want to encourage you to see how Jesus deals with others who felt that way. Come to him and be welcomed. In Psalm 27, David, the king, at one point, was feeling the weight of alienation. Psalm 27 is full of references to evildoers, adversaries, enemies, and foes. So desperate does David feel there, so disconnected from human community. He even says in in 27.10, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. The Canaanite woman knelt before Jesus in her desperation. She asked, Lord, help me, convinced that Jesus could and would help her, and he did. And he'll do the same for you. So come and kneel, come and confess your sins, call on his name. He will welcome you into a new life and into a new community. For those of us who maybe would be considered insiders, this is an invitation, I think. It's an invitation to examine our own hearts about how we think about others, particularly others with a capital O. By insider, I mean somebody from the vantage point of the church, a lifetime or lifelong Christian, a churchgoer, perhaps yours is a life of relative ease, enjoyment of friends. To come to worship doesn't cause you any stress except maybe getting the kids in the van. Jesus is frequently on your lips. Your circle of acquaintances is primarily Christian. If that's you, I'd encourage you, I encourage myself to see this passage as an invitation to examine our own hearts and acknowledge our own prejudices and the ways that we mentally limit who we think Jesus will have mercy on. I wonder if we'd consider what blind spots and casual categorizing of others that we still harbor and what inability we still have to listen to others who aren't like us. These accounts of Jesus serving the Gentiles with radical, powerful mercy, they challenge our racist or our sexist or our classist or our whateverist tribal presumptions about who God has mercy on and about who's a dog and unfit for our pious company. And so I just want to urge you not to let the heated political landscape and the hijacking of this stuff by so many on all sides, don't let that make you so cynical and hardened that you're unwilling to honestly entertain that you might still have some sinful favoritism or superiority dwelling in you. Sometimes we make our churches little sterilized enclaves 
Consciously or unconsciously, we don't reflect the diversity of the kingdom that includes rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. We only ever talk to our friends. We only ever associate with our gospel community. We assume the pastor is going to connect with those visitors, those newer folks. We pass off opportunities to minister to needy folks, to organizations. Yes, sometimes the church isn't the honest, vulnerable, welcoming refuge we wish it could be and know that it should be. But the thing about the church is that she belongs to Jesus. And he doesn't quit on the church. He keeps refining us, sanctifying us, pruning us, nurturing us. He keeps making us more and more into his own image. So I think the invitation for us who might be considered insiders this morning is to go along with that refining work to ask the Lord, what is still in me that keeps me from being excited about the Lord multiplying his blessings for Gentiles? And for everybody, I'd ask, wonder if this passage doesn't make us just marvel at God's power and mercy, at Jesus' ability to save and his willingness to do so, and then to so glorify the God of Israel. Doesn't this just give us, this passage, doesn't it just give us lots of opportunity to reflect on the jaw-dropping, soul-restoring, sin-forgiving power of Jesus? Have you experienced that? Do you know that this morning? I know that maybe most of you have. Maybe you've experienced even physical healing from the Lord, emotional healing, mental peace and assurance, the long-term hope and joy that he gives despite painful circumstances, but most of all, the unfathomable relief of forgiveness of your sins. Jesus drove out a demon from a severely oppressed girl instantly, from a distance, with a word. Jesus healed lame people. He made mute people able to speak. He made crippled people whole. He restored sight to blind people. He fed 12,000 plus people with seven loaves of bread and some fish. And he did it all for his people's historic enemies, people everybody assumed to be outside salvation. And so let's just take a moment and recount in our own lives how Jesus has had mercy on us in similarly miraculous ways the first time that you repented of your sins and put your faith in him. Or maybe every time you've fallen on your face or on your knees and cried out, and he's met you. He's brought you this far. Or the stupid, stupid things that you and I have done and said. (laughs) And he's just wiped the slate clean. Or the crushing trials that he's faithfully borne you through. This is our God. It's our God, Jesus makes plain. This is our God, a God who repairs and remakes brokenness. A God who's not stopped or stymied or frustrated by our weakness. A God who demonstrates his love and faithfulness with more constancy than any atomic clock. A God who will absolutely, undoubtedly, indisputably bring every last one of his children to unspeakable, eternal, resurrected glory. Doesn't that make you just want to sit at his feet and weep for joy. Don't you just want to adore the crucified and risen Jesus forever? Do not the things of earth just grow strangely dim when we contemplate Jesus together? Jesus is merciful. 
He's so merciful to all those in desperate need, even the people we think are outside the scope of his, his mercy. And so let's just glorify him together. Let's just make much of our wonderful Savior. Let's sing our hearts out to him in our praise to him. Let's speak of him when, when we stand up and when we sit down. Let's pass along his greatness and glory and truth to our children. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, I ask for Connection Church in particular that you would just bless the men and women and children here this morning. Bless everyone that is gathered now in your name to offer you praise and to sing and to hear your word and to offer prayer and to be together. Father, I pray that outsiders would be made insiders, so to speak, in the kingdom that you would show yourself again mighty to save and willing to do so. That every person who maybe doesn't have a sense of welcome yet, for whatever reasons, maybe hasn't come to Jesus in faith yet, I pray that you would work so powerfully in their heart now to open their eyes to see Jesus with outstretched arms, willingness to receive them. God, grant these things, I pray, and grant that those who already know that welcome and love, that we might be the most welcoming people on the planet. That it would never be said of us that we're closed and distant and standoffish and rude and unwilling to welcome other sinners. Lord, bless Connection Church this way. Bless me this way. Bless us all, Lord, that we might glorify and honor you, the God of Israel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.